And we think of this remarkable call to us to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it seems an impossible call, but by your grace we know that all things are possible. So speak to our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For our visitor hosts and for our visitors, just to tell you that this is the fourth week of a four-week series that I've been preaching on the key summary of what Methodists believe. We call it the four alls of Methodism. And so far we've looked at all people need to be saved, all people can be saved, and all people can know that they're saved. And this week, we turn to the fourth sentence in that, which is all people can be saved to the uttermost. And you might well say to me, well, what's that mean? What's all this about? Well, being saved to the uttermost is this doctrine of Christian perfection, which is one of the, just one or two very, very distinctive doctrines of the Methodist Church. And this doctrine has got several different descriptions. It's known as Christian perfection. It's known as scriptural holiness. It's known as entire sanctification. It's sometimes spoken of as the filling of the Holy Spirit. But what we call it doesn't matter a great deal, but the doctrine and the experience do matter. And in fact, John Wesley himself said that the main reason God had raised up the Methodist people was to spread scriptural holiness. So at a time when British Methodism generally seems to be in decline and seems to have lost its way, perhaps as we seek this essential part of our reason for being here, we might find the renewal and the blessing which we so desperately need. I once heard a story about Christian perfection. I think I've told it to you before. One of the problems being here a long time is you've probably heard all these stories about five times before. But never mind, we've got some visitors, so I'll tell it again. <laughs> a, a preacher was uh, preaching, and he was very cynical about this whole idea of the possibility of Christian perfection, and made one of the key mistakes that any preacher can make, and that is to ask a rhetorical question. He said, has anybody here actually ever met a perfect person. And of course he'd not expected any answer whatsoever. So he was very surprised when a man started shouting and waving, I have, I have. Well, said the preacher, who was it? Well, I've never actually met this person, the man said, but I know he lived. In fact, I've heard so much about him that I feel I know him really well. It was my wife's first husband. <laughs> well, it may be that none of you has ever met a perfect Christian. But let me encourage you this morning to at least start on the quest of becoming one yourself. At least start longing after Christian perfection in your own life. At least start working towards holiness. For to take this doctrine seriously is a great engine which will offer you power in your Christian life. Four headings then. The command of the Bible, 
the commendation of the church, the confusion of the vision, and the challenge to the Christian. First then, the command of the Bible. In the Old Testament, there are four men who are said to have been perfect before God. The descriptions vary, but we're told by the Bible commentaries that in the original Hebrew, it was a very clear idea. So who were these four men? There was Noah, who got drunk and behaved badly in his tent. There was King David, who was an adulterer and a murderer. There was Asa, king of Judah, who was a double-dealing politician. And there was Job, a man who had to repent of his anger towards God. How on earth are these four men described in the Bible as perfect before God? But of course, it all depends on what you mean by perfect. We can use the words in one of three ways. First, we can use it in a legalistic way. So if a child sits an exam and gets 100%, we can say that is a perfect answer paper. Second, we can use it in a moral way. So that if a naughty child goes to visit their aunt and they behave very well, we say, well, she behaved perfectly. Or thirdly, we can use it in an artistic way. We can look out a view and we can say, oh, isn't it perfect? Or we can redecorate a room and reset the furniture and we look at it and we say, wow, it's just perfect. But the Bible doesn't use these words in any of these three ways. When the Bible uses the idea of being perfect, it's speaking about being wholly devoted to God. And these four characters in the Old Testament were certainly not perfect when it came to their lifestyle, to their actions. But they were totally devoted to serving God in every aspect of their life. That's why they were described as perfect. They wanted to please God. They wanted to walk with God. They wanted to serve God. And thus, here in the Old Testament, a different style of perfection is opened up. In the New Testament, we turn, of course, first to the Gospels. And there in the Gospels, we see a perfect life laid out before us, the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, here we see a life of love, a life of total obedience to his Father God, a life where Jesus faced temptation and indeed wrestled with temptation, but was totally without sin. Jesus is our example of perfection. But this same Jesus said to his disciples, we heard it in the Bible reading, and we're his disciples, so he says it to you and he says it to me, be perfect therefore, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we're told here that the Greek word is teleos, and it has the idea of a complete and total self-offering. And then when we move to the epistles, they also have passages opening up this idea of Christian perfection, especially in Romans and in the first letter to Peter. I haven't got the time to expound them, but, but the central idea is set out clearly in John's first letter, chapter 3 and verse 6. 
No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Now, of course, we know from our own experience of being human that we do keep on sinning. But we need to be very clear that when we sin, we are setting ourselves against the will of God. And we also need to be very clear that when we sin, it's not because we need to sin. None of us needs to sin. I do not need to sin. You do not need to sin. I sin because I decide to sin. You sin because you decide to sin. You make that choice. The most eminent predecessor I've had here, who I'm often reminded of and compared to, was William Sangster here during the war. And he wrote quite the best book on this, a book called The Path to Perfection. And in this book, he quotes 30 passages of the Bible urging us towards this aim. We need to make no mistake about it at all. This is the command of the Bible. And then secondly, this doctrine has the commendation of the church. Not all Christians like it. Not all Christians commend it, particularly those of a Calvinistic background. I talked to you about Calvinism a couple of weeks ago. The great Victorian preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who used to be at uh, Spurgeon's Tabernacle across the way, said, I've only ever met one perfect man, and he was a perfect nuisance. He wasn't keen on the idea. But listen to what John Wesley wrote, September the 17th, 1790. This doctrine is the grand deposit which God has lodged with the people called Methodists. And for the sake of propagating this, chiefly he appears to have raised us up. You see, this doctrine doesn't have the commendation of the church because it's a nice idea. It has the commendation of the church because as Wesley saw, in this doctrine there is the platform for revival. The springboard for God beginning to move in a powerful way within our church. Think about it. If each of us as individual Christians really did long to be holy, if this church and all the other churches in Great Britain were thirsting and crying out and seeking and praying and longing to live within the will of God, then love would come to us. God's love would come to us in a new and a deeper way. And the outworking of that love would have an impact on society and begin to transform society. I was hearing of a church that had blown itself apart on the matter of which chairs they ought to choose to sit on. No wonder people do not take us seriously. If we felt as deeply about the values of the kingdom of God as we feel about church chairs, then we might begin to make a difference. Until we do, we won't. But third, there's such confusion of the vision. We need to be clear as to exactly what we mean when we think about Christian perfection. Sometimes it's helpful to sort out what you don't mean so that you know what you do mean. You know that um, 20 questions game? Or sometimes it's called animal, vegetable, mineral. 
and you ask a question and you can only answer yes or no and from the 20 questions you work out what something is. So if you start off and say, is it an animal? No. Is it a vegetable? No. Well, you know it's a mineral. And you can gradually narrow it down. Is, it, is she male? No. Well, we know it's female. By what it isn't, we know what it is. Well, if I'm thinking about what it isn't, in the same way, the perfect Christian will not be perfect in knowledge. Some Christians have got vast intellects, and others are like Tony Miles. You've got everybody, <laughs> you've, you've, got, you've got everybody in between, okay? Everybody in between. So we're not perfect in knowledge. Nor is the perfect Christian perfect in judgment. We can know God's word and God's guidance and God's love and still make serious mistakes. Think about St. Peter. He knew God's word, God's guidance, God's mistakes. He knew Jesus. But he was keeping the non-Jews out of the faith until Paul confronted him. We won't be perfect in judgment. Is then the perfect Christian free of temptation? Of course we won't be free of temptation. Why will we not be free of temptation? Because Jesus wasn't free of temptation. He was tempted in the devil for 40 days. He was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was tempted on the cross to get himself off it. If Jesus was tempted, of course any Christian will be tempted. Is it then that the perfect Christian has been baptized in the Holy Spirit? That they're a Christian with a deep and special experience of God? Well, in the Bible, the church in Corinth was the most charismatic church of the lot. They had every gift going, and they were totally dysfunctional, full of sin. And sadly, the record of charismatic church leaders and members is no better than that of any other group of Christians. So none of these types of person is therefore a perfect Christian. But we need to be aiming there so that we can say as the preacher Joyce Mayer once said, I'm not where I need to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. And I think the truth of it was with Cardinal Newman when he said that to obtain the gift of holiness is the work of a lifetime. There is no short cut to Christian perfection. So let's not pretend that there is and confuse the vision. And then fourth and last, there's the challenge to the Christian, the challenge to you, the challenge to me. Someone once said, a man is as holy as he wants to be. And a woman is as holy, of course, as she wants to be as well. God loves us. God makes the power of the Holy Spirit available to us. God tells us in the words of Jesus and the words of Scripture that we are to aim for Christian holiness, for Christian perfection. And if you and I do not become holy, if we do not become more like Jesus day by day, then it's because of the choices that we choose to make. If, on the other hand, 
however much of a mess we make of it as we go along, we really do pursue God's way. We give time to God, seeking his will for our lives. We face up to the cost of being a Christian, which is considerable. We aim to center our life upon God. We involve God in every issue of our daily living. Then we will be on the journey towards where God wants us to be. Because let me reassure you that God does not demand perfect performance. What God challenges us to, what God longs for in us, is a perfect heart towards him. Let's just think about that as the choir sing a, a chorus to us. It's got one key line in it. Think about it as you hear it. Purify my heart. And then it goes on to say, I choose to be holy. Just close your eyes and listen and then I shall pray.